open the gates at the sewage farm and let oh, them yeah. in. We're pay, uh, Stop teasing that barn. It, it doesn't need anything doing to it. It looks beautiful. It's a bit... It's, a bit, it's big. Un, it's a bit untamable at this point. Yeah, Katie big. gave my two a sensational haircut yesterday. Proper professional job. Is that right? Uh, yeah, yeah. Might come round and get to do yeah, that. Yeah, do. Yeah, yeah. She's, Alan. She's, she's, she did well. I just cut mine with a pair of nail scissors. Born Mark Cole. Just hacked at it in the bath. Here they come, everybody. Okay. <coughs> Behave yourselves. Hello, everyone. Hello, Hello guys. everybody. And ladies, hello. This is our way of finding out that you can hear us. Wave back if you can hear us successfully. There we go. It's always so nice when people wave. Tremendous. Better than handshaking and high-fiving, that's for sure. Just so you know, we, um, we did with the original show, the original show, You Are the Excellent Sequel, um, tried applauding, laughing, and cheering, and it was a spectacular failure. Uh, so unfortunately, mainly for us and our ego, uh, we will not be able to have you laughing at all our hilarious jokes. Secondly, welcoming this beginning of the show with a huge round of applause, or indeed signing off with a big cheer. We should point out that so it, quite often we, when we were allowed to see each other, we'd record more than one episode at once, just because you know three of us are busy men and and Chinch is here as well. And by the third, we would invariably find that we got quite giddy and didn't really make any sense anymore so it, if, if ever there's you feel there's like a lull in, a, in an episode where it just goes completely off the rails and is even worse than normal it generally is the third of three that we've recorded and <laughs> and have kind of given up hope there is a risk that this will go the same way <laughs> no chance <laughs> there's, there's there's a risk that the zoom group chat has already gone that way so uh, thank you to everyone at least you know where it is a lot of it will be enjoyed by only you in the zoom room and not unfortunately by those who are <laughs> All right, everybody ready? Okay, fade in on applause. That's what it says at the top of this, not gonna work. Uh, this is Set Piece Many, the podcast where four friends in lockdown talk football over food. I'm Hugh Ferris, joining me are Stephen Wyeth, Rory Smith, Andy Hinchcliffe, and a group of people who are both audience and free content providers, the SPM listeners. There's a go, what? They're that was me clapping, sorry. And two people clapping. And even with just two people clapping, it was too much for Zoom to handle. Uh, welcome to part two of SPM Live. It's not live. Why two parts? Well, pick your reason from the following options. Number one, we had so many people all over the world wanting to join us that we had to do two. Two, it halves the workload. Or three, it's my birthday in the week this is going out and I really needed the space to celebrate extravagantly, you know, at home under semi-lockdown with just my wife. Uh, once again, the audience has been invited and for some reason trusted to join our conversation here on Set Piece Menu. A select 11 has been chosen to ask questions and once again, I'm randomly going to select one person to open the program by telling us what their food is. And today we are joined by our original buffalo, Mark Cole. Mark? Would you like to unmute yourself and tell us what your last meal was? And that will be the food for this episode. I had peanut butter sandwiches. Yes! <laughs> yes! <laughs> Chinch was already celebrating. Mark, thank you very much indeed. Chinch has managed to get uh, peanut butter into a pizza bread over the course of lockdown. He's managed... Uh, Not into a pizza bread. I just smothered it on, on top, top of the pizza, of pizza bread. bread. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Even though that your question was, what does a pizza bread do? It has things in it, and yet you still didn't, having found out the answer, use it correctly. And also, what's the other thing you've been enjoying, Chinch? And perhaps you would like to display uh, what uh, is shown behind you. It's uh, an empty packet of Herta original frankfurters herter makes a meal happy herter makes a meal happy 
They're not in a sponsor's so change. Hung- really? Why not? Because they've got better things to do. They seriously haven't. I, I was so hungry, I didn't even microwave them. I just ate them cold out oh of the packet, God. which you can do. You can do. That's perfectly fine. I don't know what you're laughing at. They are delicious. So I've had five, and they're tremendous. Chinch, what doesn't... Like, Nikki makes such amazing food and gets you through life. What, what on yeah. earth does she think when she wanders in to see you chowing down on a raw hot dog? She's not happy. <laughs> She's my pasta surprise, the only meal I can make, she disagrees with on principle. Hot dogs, no. Ice cream, no. Everything I like, I'm not allowed to have. So it's a good time to, to fall out with her. So then you can, at least for a couple of weeks, you can eat what you want. You don't have to have her tremendous cooking. Have you fallen out with her, Chinch? Because I'm starting to worry that the only time she cooks is when we come over and that the, the major victim of lockdown is you because mm. you've not had a decent meal in 10 weeks. No, I, I have had a decent meal. I just supplement it with, uh, with, with hot dogs. I can't you chew get... them, or do you eat them like a duck? Um, I, I alternate. <laughs> I Sometimes can't... letting them slip down whole. Oh, my goodness. You can feel them. You can feel them like a washing machine in your tummy. Oh, God. Uh, Chinch, thank you. I can't get what I want is a general description of marriage, or maybe just Chinch's marriage, is, uh, one of which, of course, was an epic failure. Uh, if you'd like to send any emails, you can do to setbeesmenu at gmail.com. Uh, we will be putting up sections, by the way, of our chat today on Twitter and Facebook. So a reminder of our format for SBM Live, It's Not Live. Just like last week, a select 11 of those who applied to be on the show will each ask a question of the four of us and afterwards we will have a completely unnecessary and non-binding vote, probably on social media because the people who are involved in this one would clearly vote for number two, to decide which select 11 was better. Some of the questions share a theme. Uh, They are to come, but we start and um, the, the original person, and indeed anybody who subsequently follows to ask a question, can be in charge of unmuting themselves uh, with Mr. Richard Parfit. Richard, would you like to ask the first question of this episode, please? Where are you, Richard? I found you. Over here. Please. Hello. Thank you. Um, so I want to ask, uh, where in the world do you think has the most mature attitude to talking about football, or is it pretty much as partisan and petty um, as it is in England everywhere else? Well, I think it's important to start this with um, ruling out Argentina, Rory. Yes, it's not there. <laughs> I, you remember when Man United pulled out of the, um, the FA Cup to play in the Club World Cup in Brazil? Uh, and they drew or lost to Nicaxa of Mexico. I can't remember. Is but that I remember... one that Gary Neville messed up in? Gary Neville made a hilarious mistake in one of those games. What was that against Vasco? I can't remember. Oh, maybe. But anyway, when, when Nicaxa scored... And I think it was like an Ecuadorian striker who had long hair and a big forehead. Um, I remember kind of laughing because Manchester United had conceded against this team they were meant to be meant to be beating. And obviously, being a Yorkshireman and a teenager, I was I was not as mature as I am now. Um, and this was before my professional career. So I made that abundantly clear. Uh, and my dad saying to me, "What? Why are you laughing?" I said, "Oh, it's because you know." Man United, aren't they, you know, isn't it ridiculous the, the way that everybody thinks they're just going to walk away to Brazil and beat all these teams? And he said, yeah, but the thing is that, that all of the other countries with teams in it will have exactly the same view because that's how everybody talks about football. And at the time, I thought, no, everyone else is much more sensible than us. And over time, I have come to realise that that is not true. Um, I, think, I think generally Americans have a slightly more healthy discourse around sport in general than than the kind of hyperbolic European medias would allow. Um, but I can't think of a country where... Maybe France is probably the best of the major football nations 
for the way they talk about football. France is relatively sensible. Le Keep is quite a kind of, because it kind of has that market dominance, Le Keep is quite a kind of, not subdued publication, but it's relatively kind of level-headed. So maybe the French, I guess. The Italians, it's all, it's all very dramatic, but it's framed in classical illusions, which means that it's exactly as hyperbolic. It's just a better quality of hyper- hyperbole than, than we manage generally. Uh, Chinch, is that something you recognise uh, in your major travels as an Everton player, mainly to places like Holland and Iceland? Iceland, did you, yes. Did you sense uh, a, real, a real difference in the way that uh, you are treated? Um, well, being a player, you don't really pick your head up and, and look around and see what's going on and, and work out whether there is a, a mature, nuanced chat going on around <laughs> the game. And when I, was, I, went to, I went to China with the England under-18s, um, naturally I was their star player and we had a, a trip out to the Great Wall of China and I can't remember a thing about it because we just played cards there and back because we, we just couldn't be bo- players don't players don't maybe it's slightly different these days but back then players didn't really think about the game stories around the game chat about the game the future of the game they just played we were just so stupid we just kicked the ball around and played Change so I'm what? not intelligent enough and I certainly wasn't when I played to try and think about all the different conversations that are going on around the game. Change. what year was that? Uh, the year that I was under 18. Yeah. Oh, oh, now we're talking. Uh, I'm just wondering whether, what? You, I'm wondering whether you, does it must have been what, 88 or 89? No, that's when I made, I started playing, 87, 88. So it must have been, I was probably, probably playing, I was probably only about 14, I was that good. Um, so that would have been, yeah, early 80s. Early 83, 80s. You, were, you were 14 in 83. You, you stumble yeah. because you can never understand what 1969 plus a number is, so I'll do yeah. it for you. No, I'm just trying to work out. It's early 80s, that's exactly what I was doing. I was working out 14 plus 1969, which is early 80s. So, yeah, it must have been about, kind of, yeah, 83, 84 maybe. I was trying to work out if you had, because I thought it might be later, later on than that. I was trying to work out if you had anything to do with the protest at Tiananmen Square, but probably not. <laughs> no, that came later. I still yeah, had a big part to play in that, yeah, yeah. Just going to look, look up Chinese history in, in 1983, see what, see what big events happened. There's a picture of me. Hinchcliffe yes. appeared in China. Just <laughs> control F on Hinchcliffe and see what happens. Uh, by the way, you will note uh, that the, uh, the Zoom group chat that is available to all those who are participating in today's SPM Live, it's not live, is up and running and available. Um, if it uh, insults Chinch, we'll mention it to the wider group uh, who are listening at home. If it doesn't, we'll probably ignore it. But uh, I'm glad you're all enjoying it, at least up until this point. If it mentions also anything of any value, Rory will uh, claim that point as his own and attempt to seem intelligent. Uh, so, Stephen, uh, any of this chime with you in terms of uh, bearing in mind your broadcasting, particularly on behalf of the BBC? Have you come up against those who you would consider a little bit more nuanced than the conversations that you were bringing to air? I think people just complain whatever from wherever and from whatever their standpoint is. Somebody's just asked in the group chat, where does the fury come from when I'm commentating? Generally, it's player pronunciation and everybody, no matter where they are from in the world, takes exception to the way that you pronounce footballers' names. However accurately you think you might have got it, however close you think you have got it, being in the native tongue of the footballer concerned, you, you can never be absolute. We're commentators, not linguists. So we generally find ourselves apologising for that um, to, uh, to just about everybody. There's a lot of people pointing out that talk radio in the States is, is not exactly a sort of bastion of um, intelligent coverage. As someone who doesn't listen to talk radio in the States, I'm going to take your word for it. But yeah, I, I think that maybe the new, there's a difference in, in newspaper traditions and the way that 
partly because the American tradition is a little bit more numerical, um, that the that maybe the newspapers are a little bit more sober in the US. Uh, talk radio, I can well believe, is not. Uh, Richard, before we let you go, uh, just uh, did you have a country in mind when you asked the question, or are you <laughs> genuinely trying to uh, delve into the great intelligence offered up by at least one and a half members of the podcast crew? <laughs> Genuinely looking for your insights because I, I uh, am a regular user of Twitter and so assumed that the answer would be nowhere, leave the planet. Um, <laughs> so thank you very much. Anyway, Yes, I think we've all confirmed uh, that that may well be the best option. Uh, we are going to move on to our next questions. I say questions because it is a group of three all about uh, the media. Uh, so please unmute yourselves. Chris Wilkerson, Nick Adams and Tim Oscroft. Now, uh, Chris, we stole a couple of your questions a couple of weeks ago on the program. You uh, offered up three, so well done you for doing that because it means that you managed to get onto this podcast as well. Um, so Chris is coming up, and then what we're going to do is we're going to ask Nick and Tim to just follow and ask their questions, and we'll try and deal with them uh, as a whole. Uh, so Chris, you go first. Uh, thank you. Um, mainly British teams, but does football still need the print media was basically what I was going on. Um, yeah, because there's obviously lots of different sources now, etc., and a way of using it as well. So the print media, does it have a future, particularly in England? Uh, let's move on to Nick. Nick, was your, your particular question was the, about the kind of interview within the media. Yes, my question, uh, I suppose, relatively simple, but most footballers' uh, answers to questions sound like they come straight from PR Central, as if they've all been coached to say the same thing. Uh, and um, I was struck the other day, for example, in Erling, uh, Erling uh, Holland, which is how you probably should say it, but Erling Holland gave one word answers. And that made the headlines as if it was out of, uh, out of character. Or indeed, uh, the Football Daily when Stephen Warnock uh, detailed Raphael Benitez's erratic behavior. So my question really is, is there, is there any way, uh, uh, and I found these, the, the answers of uh, Horland and, and, and Warnock actually quite interesting as opposed to the others, which are rather boring. Um, so I wonder whether there's any way that we can, or is there a place that we can break the, the deal between teams, players, and journalism just to co journalists just to cover the, to have the footballers just say the most boring answers um, possible? Is there some place where we get a more three-dimensional, indeed a more realistic, a more journalistic approach to the game? Uh, well, Nick, on that uh, question, I think you are on fertile ground with the four of us. So uh, thank you for offering that. And Tim as well, because it is related to what we're talking about. Yeah, I think it follows on from the last one. Um, what I was going to say was, uh, given that some players during all this, as we have to officially call COVID-19, um, have been providing their own content for their club uh, media uh, channels, um, because press staff are evidently not allowed at training grounds at the moment. I just want to know what changes do you think all this uh, might make to the ongoing uh, club media office, press, player relationship dynamic? Thank you to Tim and to Nick and to Chris as well. Um, Chinch, I'm going to start with you because uh, you notoriously uh, did not do any interviews uh, when you were a player. You are more than making up for it uh, now as a, a former pro. But what one of the reasons why is because you didn't actually want to be boring because you didn't really want to just tow the party line and give us Nick's had a fluff interview. Um, but part of that was also because you were scared about what you might say, because as we know, you are dashingly honest. Hmm. Um, I, I, yeah, I think that the, the problem is, is we mainly interview these players on match days 
And you're probably right, they've not been necessarily coached, but they tend to watch what other people say and say the same type of thing because I know the questions are going to be pretty similar as well. But when we have maybe features in the, the lead-up to a game, so on a, a Tuesday or Wednesday, we go out and interview people at training grounds or at their homes. They are a lot more relaxed. You can ask different types of questions. And we found that in the interviews that we've done over Zoom with, with lots of Premier League players, Championship players in their own homes, they are a lot more relaxed. They will talk a lot more about subjects that you could never cover on a match day. So I think for the broadcasters on a match day, you are bound to ask. You maybe only get two or three questions anyway. So you tend to be bound by kind of the same old principles in, in terms of the questions that you ask. So the players just trip out the same old lines. So you get really nothing, I feel, of, of, of benefit really on a match day. But that tends to be when you get the best access to the players. But I was hoping that during, obviously, as Tim said, all this that's been going on, we have had a lot more contact with with players we managed to speak to them for an hour or so which we would never get at a match they would never talk to them for that much because they've got to concentrate on playing the game so uh, we wouldn't intrude so actually this has given us a chance to build up real relationships but I just tend to think that when things go back to normal in inverted commas coaches and the, um, the, the the press staff and the players will go back to doing what they did before and we will go back to asking the questions that we did before. We're hopeful that things might be different. We might get more access. We might be able to continue to use the uh, the internet to speak to players at home after games maybe a bit more, but I'm not convinced that that, that will last, even though in talking to a lot of the players and coaches, they've really enjoyed doing the interviews with us because they know we're not out to get them. We're trying to just give the the fans of their teams and viewers in general, more information, they've got the opportunity, more time to get their point across to us as well. So it has worked well for both the broadcasters and the players and coaches involved, but I'm, I'm not convinced that it will continue once football gets back to some kind of normality. Uh, Rory, there, there is a sense, isn't there? And, and I know we've spoken about the uh, Erling Haaland stuff before about the, 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 the longer part. The, that was just a section of the interview, wasn't it? The, the whole interview was about three minutes long in which he answered questions in a slightly more conventional sense. And it was just towards the end where uh, that part was clipped up and we got probably an, an in, inaccurate sense of his mood in, t- in its entirety. But we still got a little bit of, of a window into uh, his personality. You've met him. You, you've told the story about how he asked you about Yorkshire, which uh, also tells us a little bit uh, about him. But have you found during the lockdown in particular that your relationship with clubs and players has changed because of everybody understanding that it frankly needs to and whether that change will last beyond the return of football? It's hard to say. Yeah, it has to. Certain clubs have been more helpful. Certain clubs have been quite proactive in reaching out and kind of saying, look, do you want to do this? Do you want to do that? Uh, I think they recognised that, well, we were all very lucky the Germans were back first from a media point of view. If it had been one of these unhelpful leads like Italy or England, it would have been disastrous. But because it was Germany and the clubs understand the, the value of kind of, of putting their, their stories, telling their stories, uh, that's made it a lot easier. Um, I think the... The issue of of Tim's question about kind of the relationship between the clubs, the, the clubs, the club press offices, the the players, and, the, and the, the external media, and the issue of whether football needs the print media that, that Chris mentioned, are kind of two sides of the same question. That that basically football doesn't think it needs the print media anymore. Um, the, certainly, teams like Arsenal re- regard all of their player interviews, all of their footage, all of their you know. The, the stories about the work they do in the community, the stories, the background, uh, kind of profiley stuff that, that is the is the lifeblood of the print media. You know, you, you sign a new player in the summer, and and journalists are, are tasked with going out and finding out, you know, their coaches when they were seventeen, then writing four thousand words on the Athletic about about what they say. 
the the clubs think that's that's now for them to do and it's much easier for them to do they would rather that as an arsenal fan you click on the the club website and read that feature about martinelli than you go to the 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 daily express or the daily sport or razzle or one of the magazines that that cover things to the level of the daily express um they don't want the journalists getting the hits they don't see why that that content should be valuable for anybody else um I don't, I don't think that's right, and I think that's a fundamental misunderstanding both of the scope of the media and, to be honest, the advertising deals that your, that your sponsors are paying for. They don't want you just to limit stuff on, on, onto your website. They want the readership that you get from, from national, international, web, digital, whatever it is. And I think by print media now, we have to refer to, to the written word in general as being digital or on actual paper. Um, but I don't think that will that that relationship is only going one way. It will only get harder to to get access from clubs because they want to protect that content. In terms of breaking the monotony that that Nick mentioned, I think the flash interviews that you get after games are a really bad example. I've never done them. I suspect Steve and Hugh both have. They're really hard because the players are still sweaty. They're, they've been running. Around. Have you ever tried to do an interview after ninety minutes of running around? It's impossible. You can barely think. Just want to go inside and get have a shower and have a drink, the um and maybe vomit a little. The, the I think you you kind of putting players in a position where they can't really win, because what what can you say when you're knackered and breathless, and you're asked whether the game that you've just won is are you glad you've won it? Basically, there's there's a limit to what can happen. So I think that those interviews have to necessarily be a little bit more superficial a little bit more shallow because that the other thing is Hugh and Steve will say you're only getting what two minutes at most from the players probably not even that so you have to kind of go bang 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 I think for the for the broader picture that's where the print media probably can come in that you 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 have scope to to write things more honestly more openly more more sort of in more detail than you can get from those few minutes on the TV or on the radio. Because it's, that is not the right medium for the players to kind of go into their, their deep-seated beliefs about things or more information about them. Steve, uh, Rory um, invoked your name and my name about doing more flash, flash interviews. Yes, that, that was 50% plus almost of the inter- kind of interviews that we had to do just post-match. But uh, would you say that it is incumbent upon those people asking the questions as much as it is the people who are being interviewed is to try and avoid the monotony and the fluff uh, that Nick mentioned? It is our job to ask questions which, yes, tick the box or scratch that itch of the fan who wants to know that the player is happy or sad about the, um, about the game that has just taken place. But it's, it's beyond that where you really should be doing your work. And we were quite lucky as local media journalists when we started our careers, we would get to speak to a player probably a lot longer after the game had finished, about an hour after, sometimes an hour and a half, sometimes two, depending on how annoying the footballer was. And you would, you would have the opportunity, having them suited and booted, to be able to get maybe four or five minutes. And that's where you'd put your questions in that would throw it forward to uh, issues that were slightly more interesting to us um, but also slightly more, um, hopefully, engaging for them to answer. And in, in those days, Hugh, we were also thinking a game or maybe even two ahead, weren't we? We were having conversations with players thinking, well, actually, what's happened in the game just now, that's already gone as far as we're concerned. We're looking ahead to Champions League midweek, mid-week and maybe what's happening in the Premier League the weekend after because we needed to stretch that interview out. And I think that's something that 
the newspapers do a little bit, and I know certainly Rory has conversations with people for, for thinking about pieces much further down the line than the immediate uh, next few or few days. But yeah, absolutely. They are difficult to do, those flash interviews, especially if you've been commentating on the game, because a bit like if you've been in, involved in playing in the game, your head's a bit all over the place. You're trying to remember all of the key moments that happened within the 90 minutes, knowing that you've probably only got 90 seconds with the manager or the player to try and cover the the major incident. So that can be a bit of a challenge because whilst you're listening to an answer, you're also thinking, right, I need to make sure that I've, I've asked at least these two other points as well. So it's not always easy for the interview to, to take the form of a conversation and follow the process of picking up on something that that, that player or that manager might have said and, and go into it in more depth because you just simply haven't got the freedom to do that. But certainly something that has become far too prevalent, especially in immediate interviews after games, is making statements rather than asking questions. And that brings us back to the, the Erling Haaland uh, monosyllabic answers. I'm surprised we don't see that more often because if we did, that would put the onus on the interviewer to think a little bit more carefully about what they're what they're asking and it's perhaps to to our great benefit in the long run that that managers and players are just willing to 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 throw out the the sort of the classic cliches and tropes because that digs you out of a hole on the basis that you haven't actually asked a question in the first place. So that is certainly one thing that could be done to improve it. The other thing that I would like to see immediately after the game and if you've been in a tunnel, you will have seen monitors everywhere whilst you're doing your interviews. So when the manager says, I'm sorry, I, I couldn't see that incident. I've not seen it. I didn't have a good view of it. I believe we should be entitled to say, oh, well, if you just turn your head 90 degrees, there's a monitor running the incident right now. Why didn't you have a look at it? And then give us your answer. That would improve post-match interviews massively. Yeah, I, th I think just following on from what Steve is saying there, we, we try to introduce this at Sky last season, certainly in the championship, is, is give the, the players or coaches 10 minutes to get their kind of head straight to cool down, to calm down a little bit. And we had touch screens at games. What we wanted to do was get coaches and players out, show them the goal they just scored, the winning goal, or some tactical nuance from the game. But the, the coaches and the players were absolutely terrified of doing this. They were terrified of making themselves look stupid, even though we would be in charge of doing all this. But basically, we wanted to again, show them so they could talk about, and it was always about something that had gone well. It wasn't as if we were criticising them for a, a red card challenge. But again, it's trying to break those barriers down and say to the players, we're not out to get you. And hopefully all the conversations we've had during, during lockdown has, has encouraged the players to speak to us a little bit more, trust us a little bit more, so that when we try these, different, just to give the viewer a, a bit more than the standard two or three questions straight after a game pitch side, is let them cool down use a touchscreen. And I think once we introduce it and people see it being used and realise how it's being used, that again, that will be much better. I'm, I'm a big believer in showing fans, showing players so they can explain exactly what they've done and how it's all happened. But last season, it was a real challenge to try and convince players and coaches to, to come pick side and, and use a touchscreen. That's a great example of football has been quite like toddlers, just when, when Ed's been running around a lot. Um, we tend to bring him inside, give him an iPad, just hope that go. that kind of brings him down a, le a level. Works, Here you go, <laughs> you've scored a goal, here's an iPad, play on that for 10 minutes, and, and then, we'll, then maybe you can have your tea. The, um, it's, really, it's really dangerous, you don't want to kind of preach at other journalists, because every, every form of, of journalism is different. But I, I do get annoyed when, when you see players who've, the, you know, the, the goal scorer is always sort of wheeled into the interview, and they're always asked, what was basically you scored a goal 
was it a good goal? And they'd go, yeah, well, you know, I scored it. And you sort of think, well, you're not really giving them a chance to say anything. What, what, what are they meant to say in reaction to kind of, did you enjoy scoring that goal other than, yes, I enjoyed scoring that goal? And I think that maybe in, t- in time, there'll be a little bit more sort of expectation on the, on the broadcasters, but also on the, on the TV companies. Maybe don't get the guy who scored the goal. Maybe get the guy who played the pass and ask him what he saw. Maybe, because ultimately you're, you're asking players quite often to explain things that aren't conscious, that are things that they've done instinctively because that's what they're really good at. And they, you know, maybe Erling Haaland, which is how we now have to pronounce it, can't explain like what, why he made that run. He just, that's just the run he makes because he knows how to, he knows where to go. He's got this sense. You, you maybe need to kind of change the way we think about those interviews if you want them to add more value. And that's probably why Chinch likes to give man of the match a lot to players who don't score the goals necessarily because he believes that he has seen with his analytical eye something uh, of a question from kind of go- somebody else. On, again, the context and what type of goals are scored. Yeah, but I think I've mentioned giving those Troy Deeney scored a hat-trick for Watford once, but they were all kind of tap-ins. And I gave it to the creator of two of his three goals because the, the, the genius in the goals was actually the creation and the weight of the pass and the angle of the pass. So again, he was really mortified. Scored three and not got man of the match. Yeah, but you weren't man of the match. I thought he had a bigger influence than you did. You all, all you had to do was, was connect with the ball and put it in the net. So, And you're right about the relationship being important as well. Something that Steve and I were able to do over the course of covering uh, a couple of clubs regularly is that you were able to build up a relationship so that they would understand that either you wouldn't ask boring questions or if you did ask boring questions, you they at least knew why you were doing it. And thirdly, they would trust you if you wanted to take the, the, the uh, interview in a slightly different direction. Uh, the Holland harland debate is raging uh, on our group chat. Also, Nick posed a question to Rory, which I'm going to get Rory to answer for the, for the group as well, about the Stephen Warnock uh, interview, about Rafa Benitez, a person, Rory, you know well. And of course, uh, Stephen Warnock was on the show that you were on as well. Uh, so you are literally well. the glue that... But you wrote a book for him, for God's sake. Oh, you know, I know Rafa Benitez well. Yes, yeah, that's no, the one I that I said that you knew well. You didn't know Stephen Warnock. No, I mean, I know Stephen Warnock a bit. I know, we all but, know Stephen Warnock a bit. I mean, well, he can't <laughs> escape him these days. He's, om- he's omnipresent. So what, what did you think about the criticisms that he leveled at Rafa Benitez? And as Nick said on the chat, which I'll put to you, that he was balanced, but obviously when somebody... Uh, goes outside of himself or the typical norm of a footballer, you tend to notice that a little bit more. You, basically, they, so the way that that show works is that they will kind of, I'll speak to the producers during the afternoon on a Monday and they'll say, right, this is what we've got coming up. And because of, uh, as, as Tim said, all this, we, we, we're doing like a, like a nostalgia feature every week. And generally, I, I hate nostalgia, but because they're paying me, I, I just go along with it. And they, they said, well, it's... it's how 15 years since Istanbul, so we're going to do going to do that, but we want to do it a bit differently. We're going to get Stephen Warnock on. He didn't play that night, so we're going to talk about what it's like, what it's like being being a player who's who gets a medal and is in the is, is is on the squad, but isn't isn't actually playing. And I thought, yeah, all right, that for nostalgia, that's that's just about valid, fine. And then he came on, and it's not that I tuned out, but you kind of know naturally that that's not a bit that really involves you. That that he's the guest, he's going to talk. That's fine. And what he said was extraordinary. Like I've never, I genuinely have never heard a player talk that openly, almost unprompted about a really painful memory that doesn't paint them in a particularly good light. That he, you know, I think Kelly Cates was presenting and she, she asked him, you know, were you happy that Liverpool won? And he basically said, well, I was ambivalent, to be honest. And that's not, that is really not the party line. You're meant to say, you know, great great that the team has won and we're really, really pleased for all my, for all my mates. Disappointed not to play, but obviously the main thing is that, that Liverpool won the Champions League. And, I, and Warnock 
didn't. He kind of, he veered off from that line. And when someone does that, you immediately sit up and take notice. And yeah, I think it's a shame that more players don't feel empowered to do that. Um, And it's perhaps a a reflection that the media doesn't create the space for them to feel empowered to do that. That, that, that Going back to to the, the first question, that maybe our discourse around football means that players feel they can't talk like that because they're, they're worried about the backlash. Now, for Warnock, it's 15 years ago. It, it doesn't matter. Like he, can, he can say that and it, it's not going to do him any damage. But maybe for others, maybe we could get more honest, more insightful conversations from them if they felt they were in an, in, in an environment which would tolerate it. Yeah, I think the, the, the control that clubs have been putting on players for the best part of 20-odd years now it has been proved to be counterproductive because actually if there was a little bit more freedom and if the publications or interviewers were, were well, perhaps rewarded for, for good content that came from their, their speaking to a, a player or a manager, then that would drive a, an improvement in that relationship rather than clubs behaving as though everybody is out for the gotcha piece, which that really is, you know, only maybe a very small percentage of, of publications. So why tar everybody with that brush? Because some of the most interesting stuff I've done, I remember doing an interview with, with Wayne Rooney about a, a, a boxer from Merseyside who was about to have their big first pro fight. And he was brilliant. And he spoke so openly about it yet when you turn the the interview towards the end just a couple of questions ahead of the weekend's match Wayne he completely clammed up and Paul Scholes was similar did a feature with him once on the area in North Manchester where he grew up and he still took his children there to the doctor to the dentist so even though he lived elsewhere he still felt like he had his roots in that community and he spoke very passionately and openly about that but again the minute you came back to football he was seemed unsure about what to say and whether it was the right thing to say and that has clearly been drilled into them from from a club point of view so when you got away from the football side of things they felt as though they could express themselves but the alarm bells went off the minute you wanted to talk about football wouldn't it be nice if they could talk more freely on on the subject that they know the best of all you should transcribe those interviews, Steve, and pitch them to The Athletic, because I'm sure they'd uh, love both of those. And I always remember Paul Scholes, just to, to continue to clang, um, is that when he started talking about football, he would do that thing that kind of three and four-year-olds do when they're asked to do show and tell, where they get so uncomfortable with speaking in front of anybody, they start to pull at their clothes. Paul Scholes used to pull at his clothes in the way a toddler would in the first time that they're ever asked to uh, do anything in front of a class. Uh, to Chris, to Nick, to... Uh, Tim, thank you very much indeed for your questions. You can uh, understand that uh, we talked about them for quite some time because we like talking about ourselves and our industry. We, knew, we now move on to, and stand by to unmute, Rand St. John and Wapaya Buntugu. So the both of you have questions about footballers, analytics, and playing by rote, which is conversations, that, which are conversations that we've had uh, in the past, but we wanted to uh, further them here. Uh, where are you, Rand? Wave at me, Rand. Is he there? There you go. Rand, where are you, Rand? Uh, I'm in Barbados. Okay, uh, that makes me really angry. (laughs) (laughs) The reason I ask is because you are wearing a singlet and I can tell that there is much sunshine and greenery behind you, so I was really annoyed about that. Wapaya, where are you? He's going to show off. Oh, no, he's going to show off. Oh, no. I'll make it worse. Oh, and he's right party around Rand's house when lockdown's over. <laughs> Wapaya, where are you, Wapaya? Um, I'm in Ghana. 
I'm you're Ghana. in Ghana. Well, it's great to yeah. you don't have to don't have to show us around because you'll just make Rand yeah, feel. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Rand, would you like to start? What was your question about playing by rote? Uh, right. So my question was, how many footballers know how to play the game? Um, how many are encouraged to think for themselves and fully grasp the intricacies of their role? And how many can like explain tactical decisions, that kind of thing? How many can play the game and know the game? And Wapaya, yours is uh, fairly similar because it's about how you can transfer those qualities of a previous generation into the modern generation. And it's not just about the intelligence, it's also about your technical skill. What's your question, Wapaya? Yeah, mine also involves how we appreciate those players and teams because if you think about it, you cast your mind back to the old players and you're talking about how gifted they were with the ball and stuff like that. But going forward, it looks like we're going to be talking more about XG per 90 or progressive passes and stuff like that. So the way analytics has really um, changed the way we consume and appreciate the game. So that, that's why I wanted us to talk about how we now change the way we think about certain players and the quality of certain players based on these various metrics. Uh, Rand and Wapaya, thank you very much indeed. So the question is twofold question about the mental attributes of a player, particularly in the modern age, and the physical attributes of a player from yesteryear and how they might fall through the analytics net. And some of the greatest players of yesteryear uh, might do that. Uh, Chinch, you are in one of those categories, I think. Yeah. <laughs> how, I how, your, <laughs> how were your analytics? And how would they translate to the modern era, do you think? Um, well, just, just the first question, really, from, uh, from Rand there. In terms of, well, well players can, to play professionally, you can play. But actually, understanding the game is, is a whole different skill set. It wasn't something that was actually coached or taught back when I played. Maybe towards the end of my career, you were starting to, to think about or, or be schooled by coaches about other positions, the opposition, maybe flexible systems of play. Are those two things related? That it came needing to understand it came in towards the end of your career yes i, I think yeah as soon as i stopped playing there was a massive leap forward <laughs> and football really did develop very very quickly but it just wasn't from a kid till till probably kind of early 2000s it, it wasn't really the way we just went out on a training pitch and, and trained the way that we'd always done but things definitely changed you went into classrooms now and you're speaking to, to the modern player in every division really they're doing so much classroom work and watching videos and, and understanding other players' positions and, and obviously how the opposition play and how to maybe change your own system to cope with what the opposition do. So there's far much more thought that's, that's passed on to the player now for them to take on. That's the big challenge, being able to play and then to understand the game is a, is a huge leap. But in terms of the metrics, I think you're right. If you're looking at maybe you know, players like Berbatov or Zidane or maybe Platini, I don't know if, if we're looking at you know, distance covered and progressive passes and all that type of stuff, would players like that be noticed as much they probably would yeah, exactly. because of the goals that they create and the, the great goals that they score so they'd still come to the fore because they're doing stuff that mere mortal can't do but I, I, yeah, I just wonder whether any players might have slipped through the cracks a little bit because teams in way, the way they evaluate maybe making signings or assessing players that they want to bring to the club whether a few of the great great yeah, players yeah. Johan Cruyff would he, would he have always got into a team would he have always been picked up because of what he did um, so it's a really interesting point as to whether we might have lost or clubs might have missed a few of these really great players. I think it's one of the, in terms of Rand's question, I think it's, it's an interesting balance and I wonder if we've come through a certain part of the cycle. So there was definitely a point where a lot of people felt that academy coaching stripped kids of their 
natural instinctive ability to play that, that they were basically little automatons running around being told that when someone's got the ball here in this quadrant you go to that quadrant and then they pass you the ball and then you've got the ball in this quadrant and you give it to that person over there and that's how football works and I think a few years ago there was as there always is in football that when one thing kind of rises something else will kind of move to this is terrible audio I'm using doing a hand gesture but like it's always like a it's always a balance and that so one thing will become popular and then there'll, then there'll be a reaction to it and I think the academies worked out that they weren't allowing young players to to kind of generate their own understanding of the game that they they were taking talented kids and making them follow orders but that they were losing some of the magic a little bit so I wonder whether players who are like 19 20 now probably have more understanding of what they're doing than players who are say 25 26 now so they the 25 26 year olds might be the the robot generation mm-hmm. but the the someone like Jaden Sancho say is has maybe been allowed to to indulge that side where he kind of it's the same to be honest I think the same thing's happened in education you don't learn by rote anymore you you don't sort of learn right this is your this is your kind of this is the syllabus I remember biology GCSE they just gave us the, the the syllabus and said right learn it off by heart you'll pass the exam and it worked whereas now you're kind of meant to understand what you're what you're learning I think football's had the same journey um in terms of like how we appreciate players. Have we got any Americans? We do have Americans. Anyone in the States? So like when you, when you go back through like baseball and basketball history, do you, do you like remember like Magic Johnson partly because of his statistics or partly because of, or mainly because of the kind of the way that he played? Because I do think that's a really interesting subject. Like are we going to look back on players now and say, well, actually they weren't that good because their XG per 90 was actually quite disappointing. Because that, to me, would be valid, but yeah. it would lose yeah. something a little. You'd lose part of what you want to remember about Johan Cruyff isn't. I have no idea what Johan Cruyff's XG per 90 was. I imagine it was pretty good, mm-hmm. to be fair. Was and it more or fewer than the amount of cigarettes he would have in that time? I was going to say, <laughs> XG per Benton and Hedges, pretty high. <laughs> and the, um, Same and with yeah, George I just, Best. I don't... I, I'm broadly like pro analytics and pro data, and I think it's it's good. I don't think it's a, a, a culture war that is being fought anymore. I think it's been won, but I I'd never ever thought about how it might influence the way we remember players. But I think that's really interesting. I think if you if you've got a turn named after you, then that's going to have a greater legacy than your XG statistics. Although uh, we, there will be those conversations because you already get them. We we talked a bit about it in the FIFA and football manager conversation the other week. Is that people talk about the statistics of a player as though that is the justification for their greatness or otherwise, rather than looking at the medals they've won or those eye-catching moments that, that linger with you for a lifetime, which has got to be surely what it's all about. Chinch, what was the XG on chances created by you via throw-ins, as has been on the uh, chat, and also via throw-ins. in-swinging corners? Yes, oh, both, in-swinging both. corners. Massive, massively high on in-swinging corners. Massive throw-ins, not so much. Not so much on throw-ins. Uh, it's interesting to, to think about your, your analytics. Uh, I would imagine your analytics would have been the numbers on a Chinese menu takeaway, and that's about it. So that's the, well, Mark Vaughan's put on the chat that baseball's gone through this process with stats like WAR, which is, I don't know, wins above replacements. There you go. <laughs> there you go. Big Got nod. it. I've read books. Uh, which is one stat which tries to say how good is one player in one number you can rank players across each other across eras and that inflates or deflates someone's relative importance decades after they played that's something we've never had in football it's that that is the kind of crux of the eternal debate about whether kind of Pele 
or Maradona would be able to do it now or whether Messi be able to do it then or whether, you know, that, uh, that is having that figure on one level really appeals to me, but on another, I think would be not great. Be a bit sad to be like, well, actually maybe that Pele guy was overrated. Diego Maradona only played four games in the European Cup. Probably, probably just forget him, write him, write him off. And instead it turns out that it's some other guy. Jorge Valdano is actually the greatest player of all time. I don't know how I feel about that. I think, that's a, I think we should steal that subject. Do a whole separate pod on it. Right, I think you should make a note of that because I've got too much in front of me. And now we're talking about WAR. Does anybody want to talk about DVOA and NFL? Hands up. Hmm. Oh, no. actually, I surprisingly got one. Uh, thank you, Matthew Plunkett. <laughs> uh, I was expecting you to play along and, and make sure you were with everybody else. And you said, absolutely no, thank you. Uh, Rand and Wapaya, thank you very much. Excellent questions Good stuff. Uh, from both of you. We now move on to another pairing. Uh, Mark Vaughan and Stanley Amoa, would you like to unmute yourselves, Stanley and Mark? Mark, you go first, and then we'll come to Stanley straight after. Okay, so let's say it takes about 18 months to, to make a vaccine. That puts us at roughly January 2022, and then until then we only have ghost games or low-capacity games. Uh, what happens to the lower league and the non-Big Five uh, league teams till then? Because about 50% of revenue comes from uh, the match day. Um, how did they? How did these teams exist? How do they play games? The players take wage cuts. Do they? Um, do the leagues pause until they can put people in the seats? And how does that then widen or uh, the gap between the, the big five leagues and everybody else? Mark, thank you very much indeed. And Stanley, we mentioned ghost games before. Mark did it there as well. At the moment, leagues, most leagues, are resuming without fans anybody who's watched Bundesliga will kind of come to their own conclusions about what the atmosphere is like but in terms of the players who will succeed under these conditions that's where you come in Stanley with your question yeah um thank you Hugh. um so my question to you guys was about the psychological impact of um having no fans at stadium on players I mean you hear of players who've been bought for big prices such as Nicolas Pepe and different players like that who may have not performed up as to fans expected so you also hear of players like Higuain, Cavani, who people genuinely feel as if at big games they don't perform. And some footballers also talk about the fact that some players are fantastic in training, but when it comes to Saturday, um, they're nowhere to be seen. So do you expect to change um, for some players regarding when they're playing psychologically with no fans? Do you expect there to be less pressure? Do you expect some players to perform that possibly haven't performed on many Saturdays as we've all seen? And you expect some players who may have um, been able to perform better under crowds um, unable to perform now. So it was more the psychological impact of having no fans, um, but due to COVID-19 that I wanted to explore. Stanley, thank you very much indeed. So uh, questions about COVID. Uh, who wants to start? We'll come to the player question in just a second. Perhaps we can talk about uh, the nuts and bolts a little bit to, to start with. Uh, Stephen, about we spoke last week about the regionalising yeah. of one and two. This is related to this, uh, but more on a short-term basis. What happens between now and a potential, as Mark says, vaccine in January 2022 is the latest possible uh, suggestion as a time that, that might come into to effect? Yeah, I, I think I can give Mark an ideological answer to this. But as we know from sort of elite level football, that it never re really pans out like that. But you would like to think that with the amount of money at the top of the game, and with the fact that it is at the top of the game that football will return, that they will find a way, they will explore the ways to ensure that those further down the pyramid 
can survive, whether that's about money filtering downwards or whether that's about giving them the opportunity to play in, in their stadiums, which would enable them to, to cut their own costs or would even potentially offer them as we, because we've already reading in the last few days about those leagues that are already planning for having stadiums at 20 or 30% capacity. Well, in terms of, you know, where we sit in Manchester, we've got Old Trafford, we've got the Etihad Stadium, yet we've got lots of clubs in the satellite regions who play in the, the third and fourth tier. It'd be much easier for them to get money through the gate if they were able to play 20, 30% capacity games at, at bigger venues. There must be a way that football at the elite level can help it further down because ultimately it does exist as, as uh, it, it, football exists as a whole, even if the the top percent in terms of the revenue is is relatively small you know those those big clubs can't just exist on their own because they do need football below them to to make sure that the, the whole continues to thrive so that would be the idealistic answer but perhaps there is also a thought to say well do you know what yeah let's put the handbrake on let's let's not have lower level football until it's absolutely 100% safe for them to play in front of crowds if their survival absolutely depends on getting people through the gate. I think, yeah, it's, I, I think it's actually more immediate than that. What happens in September when there's no vaccine? Just there won't be by September. Do you just not play League 1 and 2? There, there is ultimately... I think, I think the original question was what happens kind of below the top, the top six in England. The Premier League will be fine because the TV money will enable them, even while making sort of losing one, one whole revenue stream. That's not great for them, but they will survive. They'll be able to play on. Championship probably as well. There's, enough, there's just about enough money in the championship to keep, to keep the thing, to make it worth playing. But to be honest, I think in the current, in the current situation, so no vaccine, no cure, and social distancing still in place for several months to come, you probably have to look at Leeds 1 and 2 and just say, we, we don't play them. And that, that feels horrible to say, but those are business, those are leads where they're not reliant. They don't have any television income really to, to pay the bills. They're, they're reliant on fans going through the gates. And in a, in a sense, and I'm not saying I condone this, but they're not kind of television events. Those games are, you know, Macclesfield against, name another lead two team. Exeter isn't, isn't a TV event. It, it might be on TV, but the vast majority of people watching it are probably at it. And you might get a few casual viewers. So it, as much as it's kind of anathema to someone who, who va- values that whole pyramid, I think you probably have to say, well, unless, unless the government is going to come out and say, this thing is here to stay, we're going to have to get back to some sort of semblance of normality relatively quickly, in which case you, you might be able to have fans in the stadium by January, February next year. You might say, right, well, in that case, they can take the hit and get money from the Premier League or from the FA or whatever to, to, to tide them over. I think you probably have to say, well, if we, if the likelihood is there's no um, there's no vaccine or cure for a year, maybe more, we can't play them. And as um, I think Matt, Matthew Plunkett has just said, it's worth considering if a vaccine doesn't doesn't come to be, which is something that we we all have to be prepared for because there's no guarantee. I suppose the the only answer there is that at some point we're going to have to decide whether it's it is a risk that we as a society want to take. Is it worth? Is the potential spread of the disease? in the long run, worth having lower league football. That, and that's something that, that is, I guess, a personal choice. But what Steve said, I think it's really interesting, that 
and again, this is devil's this is devil's advocacy. Does the Premier League need League One and Two to be thriving to thrive? Is that is that true? Well, football is symbiotic, isn't it? In order for the Premier League to be seen as the the gold standard, there has to be other football that you can judge it against domestically. And that's true. But if you take the example of the Borg, so the Borg's view was very much that they just needed to kill everybody else, and then they'd be the best. So maybe maybe that's the. I mean, it, I, I know what you mean, but I don't think I don't think the Premier League's health is directly related to the existence of League Two. Yeah, if the, I'm completely surely, honest, surely the Premier League looks at League One, looks at the, the Spanish yeah. League and the, the German League. They're not looking at Leagues One and Two. Do they? Do they generally hand so on heart? Thank God, we're better thank than Luton. Do, do they? Do they really hand on heart care about whether Leagues One and Two actually play their games? Well, Probably I, not. I wouldn't have thought so. And that's, I'm not. That's not to have a pop at Steve, obviously, but I just think that's it's something that that is is sort of that we all kind of believe. But isn't maybe it's not true. Maybe they don't. Maybe they don't need Lee One and Lee Two to come back. Maybe they. Maybe if you, like the Glazers. I can't imagine like Joel Glazer being sat there. Saying, I really hope Macclesfield get out of trouble. But where do all those players at those big clubs hoover up for their academies at a young age? Where they? Of course, the big clubs might not care. But where do they all go? And actually, the academies. A lot of their revenue comes. The reason that the big clubs are able to have academies that have thousands of young footballers is that they are able to sell them on to clubs outside of the elite and that helps cover their costs and gives them the impetus to keep trying to unearth that one gem in 50 or 100 that they might be investing in. So the money might not be filtering down as rapidly as we'd like it to, but players certainly do. And in order to make academies with vast numbers of, of footballers viable, they need to have the idea that somewhere along the line they're going to be able to make a career out of playing the game. Otherwise, it becomes even more elitist. That's a really good point. That is probably, that, that is probably the, the, the nature of, the, of the, the, the absolute elite's relationship with the lower leagues. They see them as a place they can sell players who aren't good enough for them. Uh, Manchester City will tell you that until they had lots and lots of money, they basically funded their academy exactly that way and it was a very successful academy so it's not only a good business venture in terms of trying to create revenue it's also uh, a good in terms of PR and standing. Chinch I want to talk to you about Stanley's question. Uh, good trainers who didn't do it on a Saturday which is basically the opposite of Des Walker who didn't train <laughs> yeah. and did it on a Saturday <laughs> but, but you, you can understand what Stanley's talking Absolutely. about. Absolutely. If Absolutely. they haven't got they've got the eyes of empty seats instead of the eyes of a baying horde on yeah. them they might find that they will be able to prosper in that situation. Well, this is what's going to be really interesting about the games if, if and when they are played is to see how certain players do respond. The so-called great players, can they, can they play in empty stadia? Can they do for the team what they can do in front of 65,000 people? This is what's going to be really, really interesting. And what I'm actually, in a strange way, looking forward to is you can get a, a really good look and maybe understand the normal game a lot more because you don't have the distraction in inverted commas, of a crowd. But also, there'll be certain players that will look better under these conditions and certain players that might actually struggle that need a crowd. Paul Pogba's always a player that, to me, seems to play for the crowd. And maybe we'll see, if Paul Pogba is fit and available, maybe we'll see more from him because, again, if the crowd aren't there, you're now playing for the team and you need to be our match winner. You need to do more. So maybe we'll strangely see more from these so-called superstar players. Uh, Stanley, thank you for the question and uh, also to Mark. Um, by the way, just as a side note, uh, there have been two traditions of Zoom over the course of the last 10, 11 weeks or so. Uh, that is one, 
to have a bookcase in the background. So all of you that have books in the background, thank you very much indeed. Chris, an extra 10 points for you because the other tradition is to have a quiz on Zoom. You get an extra 10 points for having a Lee Child book in the background. That's Chris Wilkerson. Well done. As he chinched, didn't notice because one of his eyes is clearly clogged up with all sorts of goo. Um, we now move on to our next question. It comes courtesy of Andy Rogers. Andy, if you'd like to unmute yourself and uh, ask the question. Hi, so it kind of follows on from uh, Wapaya and Rand's question um, about analytics. Um, and I've got a bit of a tee-up and then a follow-on. Uh, so the tee-up is that uh, the Houston Astros 2017 World Series Astro Ball team uh, mixed data-orientated processes with kind of modern Silicon Valley recruitment strategies. Uh, they cited a paper from MIT called In Search of David Ross, where they recruited as much as team diversity as they did on traditional uh, baseball sabermetrics. So the question for the panel based on that is at the top tier, the really elite level of soccer, where we've reached a peak of athletics, sports science, recovery, and potentially a limited amount of transfer funds with not just what's going on now, but financial fair play. What are the last bastions in building an elite team? We've seen teams like Manchester City uh, building based on boring players, as has been mentioned in the pod in the past. Um, but do the panel believe there is a stone as yet unturned in creating a winning team uh, based on something we might not have seen before. Uh, Andy, thank you very much indeed uh, for the question. Um, also, what is it? Well, essentially, it's what's the next big recruitment idea? And it's not what the Astros did, which is stealing sides and cheating to win uh, the World Correct. Series, which is the only <laughs> other thing that you didn't mention, but was clearly a considerable part of that. So, uh, Rory, what's the next big recruitment idea that doesn't involve cheating? Uh, well, I, I did a, a, a thing for the, I did a, the Seattle Sounders run a, a data conference every year and I did a couple of panels for them last week, I think. And the one thing that kind of came up quite frequently was um, they think that they're, they're kind of making quite a lot of progress on, on like recruitment analytics in terms of technical ability, but the personality analytics is the next, they seem to think, that community seems to think that's the next frontier, that if you can find some way of gauging how players, I guess, react in certain situations and how they'll blend into your team, that is the, the kind of the great X factor. That's what a lot of the more traditional, um, Matthew Plunkett's put humble brag on the, on the chat. <laughs> you have no idea how unhumble that could have been <laughs> if I wasn't such a humble person. Also, <laughs> also, Matthew, you should appreciate that um, there is a league table of humble brags and Rory fills the top 20 positions uh, in that league. So he is, he is mindful of that, to say the least. The, um, but yeah, they seem to think that if you can find a way of kind of quantifying how, who players are as much as how they play, that that might be the next step at least. But quite how you do that, I've no idea. And, Is, yeah, isn't I'm that not... being done already, Rory, though? Aren't teams looking at the, the characters in the background of... of... Well, it's the boring players that was mentioned. It's yeah, the boring player wasn't... principle. Yeah, they it's do. the boring so... person principle, not the boring player. We should just differentiate the two just in case people think that Manchester City are recruiting people who can only pass sideways. But the... Um... Rodri. The... <laughs> the um... He can only run sideways. <laughs> the... Yeah, so clubs... It's one of the kind of... Under, the, the un the unheralded bits of scouting is that they've all got one or two people whose job is basically to find out if someone is to find, it's like the witch fight, the witch hunter, like their, their job is to go out and find out exactly how many affairs they're having, what their secret gambling problems like, kind of what they waste their money on, how many, you know, have they got a secret family? Yes, fine, still sign them. They do a lot of kind of due diligence on, on what people, what potential signings are like as people to work out 
partly whether they'll they kind of fit in, but mainly to find out kind of how much trouble they might be bringing in effectively. And normally, if, if you've got a really talented player, but it turns out that they do have a whole secret family, they'll still sign them. They just know about the secret family. So I think the the idea is that if you can find a way of smooth, sm- like streamlining that process, smoothing that process out, so that it takes into account kind of how they cope under pressure, what they're likely to do in various different scenarios, that you have an extra weapon in the kind of analytics war, I guess. That, I, that probably is the next, the next spot. I think if we had a definitive answer, we would uh, certainly be raking in more cash than any of us currently are doing. The th- things are cyclical, aren't they? I mean, it, we wouldn't be surprised. We're living in sort of like the 80s fashion coming back in, you know, very retro, isn't it? Rory's going for the flock of seagulls hairstyle at the moment. So these things are coming back in. Chinch's, uh, yeah, tight-fitted T-shirts. He's been down Gold's gym. <laughs> so, <I> mean, <laughs> maybe, maybe we'll just see, you know, a couple of big men up front, sharp elbows. That could be the next tactical innovation. Who knows? We could be going back to the crazy gang of Wimbledon in the 1980s. Something that we've seen in the past will be repackaged and will become successful again. Uh, we have time for two more questions. This is where we bring the substitute from the bench onto the field of play to change the course of the narrative massively. The Ole Gunnar Solskjaer role will be played uh, today by our Buffalo, Mark Cole. Mark, do you want to step in? You had a question uh, that will uh, serve as our penultimate one for this uh, version of SPM Live, It's Not Live. Uh, tell the group what you uh, would like to ask us. Basically, uh, what player from another sport do you think would have been a good footballer? For example, Usain Bolt uh, as a forward, Patrick Waugh as a goaltender, goalkeeper, uh, something on that lines. Thank you very much indeed, uh, Mark. An excellent uh, Zoom-created background, unless you are indeed floating in space. Um, Rory, Chinch, Stephen, I'm going to let you jump in with whoever has the best idea currently. Uh, there are those examples of footballers who have tried their hands at other sports and done pretty well. I also remember those, uh, those shoot-and-match magazines from the late 1980s that told me that Gary Lineker was really good at cricket and snooker as well because his mate was Willie Thorne because they were both from Leicester. Uh, Chinch, what do you have? has to be Roger Federer. Cool as a cucumber, he would be a terrific right back. He's not going to be the star of the show. He'd have to take the headband off. But I just think his, his, his footwork, his mental strength, his longevity, he, he's built to take Gary Neville's place for Man United at right back. That, that's where I'd see the Fed. Uh, Rory, Stephen? Go on, It's a bit obvious. Uh, Martin Chariots of Fire. Who would have been a brilliant winner because he was a brilliant winner at rugby, in rugby league. <laughs> so give, him a ball and he'd, give him a ball, he'd chip over it. No, I don't think that's true. I think Martin, Martin I think Chariots of Fire would have been an excellent, <laughs> an excellent right winner. I once saw Martin of Fire walking around... Give him his full uh, name. Uh, <laughs> Martin Chariots of Fire walking okay. around a Tesco's uh, doing his shopping in his, with very small shorts in his, in his kit. So he must have come from the training ground. And I watched him when he was leaving and he parked his car in a disabled bay. So he's clearly not that fit, is he? <laughs> uh, and Stephen, do you have anybody that I'm, comes to mind? I'm going to go for star of NHL 94 on oh, the Mega Drive. The once great Pittsburgh Penguin, Yaramir Yaga, who being from the Czech Republic, must have had a decent exposure to, exposure to soccer when he was growing up. And perhaps 
more in the latter stage of his career, his ability to find another franchise in terms of the NHL to give him a big payday to seemingly keep him employed well into his 40s it was, it would certainly be translatable to soccer. Uh, thank you uh, to all of you for contributing. Uh, I am the host. It is the host prerogative to move on without having to actually come up with an idea himself. But Chinch, you have more? I was, was going to say there'll be a lot of, of, of English cricketers who would do well in the football sphere, not necessarily on the pitch, but they'd put on one hell of a Christmas party. Our final question comes from Adam Bremner. Adam, uh, where are you? Wave at me. There you are, Adam. Uh, lovely to see you. Thank you very much indeed. If you would like to ask your question, I know you had two. If you'd like to ask the one based on the, uh, the troublesome managerial announcement of FC Cincinnati. Absolutely. So uh, this is prompted by, um, as you saw, FC Cincinnati announced uh, Yap Stan as their new uh, coach of a week or so ago. The problem was they posted the wrong photograph of the whiteboard man on the announcement. <laughs> and I'm going to really bastardize the pronunciation here, Stephen, but it was uh, Tito Van Tinnebroek was, uh, was, was posted. And so the question for you guys is, have you ever been mistaken for a truly well-known international player, including you, Jinch? Have you ever been mistaken for one? Um, uh, <laughs> you, you know for a fact that I have. That's very cruel. That really is cruel. But Neville Southall, the, uh, the Everton Bayamoth, he, he likened me to Peter Beardsley and Ian Dowie for our facial features. And Peter Beardsley actually came to play for Everton. And Neville used to sit in the changing rooms, looking at me, looking at Peter, looking at me, looking at Peter. Beardsley never cottoned onto this, but I knew exactly the, the game that Neville Southall was playing. But when I used to go into, this is this, no word of a lie, when I used to go into Sky Sports, apparently I look quite a lot like, um, we'll call him a goalkeeper, Rob Green. He, he, he played in goal, but he didn't keep goal particularly well. But I, I looked similar to, to Rob Green. Now, the, the staff, the entrance at Sky Sports, no word of a lie, for two years, every time I arrived to do a studio show, the security guy called me Rob. Constantly said, you're right, Rob. And I, I just said, yeah, and signed in Andy Hinchcliffe. Clearly, he never looked at it. And for about two years, he called me Rob until presumably someone said, by the way, you do know that isn't Rob Green. That's Andy Hinchcliffe. That's how much I look like Rob Green. Stephen, have you ever been confused uh, for any uh, international superstar footballers? Big crooked nose, inability to grow a convincing beard, played right back. Gary Neville was the, the likeness that was bestowed upon me when I first moved to Manchester to go That's to ridiculous. It's not, a, it's not pleasant. It wasn't one that I accepted with any degree of grace. But I'd like to think that, you know, we are... We're equals now on the gantry, so. <laughs> uh, and Rory, um, who has managed to produce a progeny. Yeah, he's, um, this, this is another sort of stalwart sort of incident of us recording a podcast that at some point Ed does join me and we, we have to cut it out of the recording, but he's only just woken up, so he might be quite quiet. Um, I used to have shoulder length hair, which at the time seemed like a really good idea. John Bon Jovi. Uh, uh, <laughs> no. No chinch. Famous uh, footballer, John Bon Jovi. But and occasionally, right I, and this, is, this, sounds, this, is, this sounds like a humble brag, it's really not meant to be, it's, pure, it's just pure fact. Uh, <laughs> several of my, my, my mates allege that I look like former Portugal goal getter Nuno Gomez. Uh, but I, I personally am not sufficiently well aware of what Nuno Gomez looked like to say whether that's true or not. But it doesn't work now because obviously I have a more sensible middle-aged man's hair. We need to see a picture of you back in the day just to kind of... Absolutely not. <laughs> <laughs>
Um, before we should uh, move on to say goodbye to everybody, Adam, did you uh, ask this question with anybody else apart from Chinch in mind? Uh, or can you look at the three of us and, and pick any, anybody? Because it's something that we'll take to the grave, particularly if it's flattering. It was purely for Chinch's benefit. <laughs> in that case, I'm glad I put you last. Uh, that's the funny question to finish. Uh, what, was your, what was your answer, Hugh? Yeah. You've got, yes. to, you've got to have a couple so far today. Come on. Host's prerogative. Time to move on. I sense no, that Hugh, the Hugh does just kind of look like the a hour. player. There is someone that Hugh looks like, and I can't think who it is. I imagine he was underachieving and not particularly talented. And it's sort of rough and tumble centre half, okay, which ironically is nothing like you. <laughs> this is the first time that I am going to look at the chat to see if there's any flattery. Darth Maul is not something <laughs> that I'm going to bring. Gary Pallister. Stuart, also... Stuart Downing isn't far off. Yes. Stuart Downing. Yeah, yeah, I've yeah. interviewed Stuart Downing and sat about three inches away from him and there was no likeness. Was it like looking in the mirror? No. <laughs> but thank you. That's very... a messy. A fat and messy. <laughs> Papaya, you win. Thank you. Papaya Kungu has suggested a fatter messy, and that's something that I'm very happy. Uh, thank you very much indeed to, to all of you. Um, listen, uh, we should th th say thank you to all of those listeners who got in touch over the course of the last few weeks um, to play their part in an effort to, frankly, what has both been something that has facilitated our laziness, which is something that we all sign up to, uh, and massage our egos, which is something that at least uh, Rory and Chinch do. Um, so hopefully that you are all, and I mean all of you who are on the Zoom, Zoom calls over the course of the last two weeks, and indeed everybody listening, have been staying safe over the course of the last couple of months or so, and that you'll be able to reconnect in a more conventional way with your loved ones in the coming weeks, because this is not conventional, but it is something that we've enjoyed very much, and we thank you for the uh, part that you've played in it. If you'd like to keep your correspondence beyond the Zoom chat going, you can do to setpiecemenu at gmail.com. Please subscribe, share, rate, and review as we humbly ask you to continue to find room for us in your podcast schedule. Thank you to Stephen, Andy, and Rory, our virtual audience of SPM listeners, and to you all at home for listening. We'll be back with another set piece menu for you to enjoy very soon indeed. And now here comes once again the silent clapping. You should know that when we save these Zoom calls, uh, the chat is also saved. So we'll be able to bring that back to haunt anybody who has said something that they think is slightly injudicious. Um, all the other stuff, which insults Chinch, clearly will be kept for <laughs> posterity uh, for our own lines in future. Thank you all of you uh, for joining. Um, can I just finish off? Rand, can you show us, show us the beach again, please? Oh. That's really upsetting. Oh, that's horrifying. Mm. Rand. Move to Woodford. Rand, 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 do <laughs> us a favour. If, if it makes you feel any better, we can't, uh, here in Barbados, we can't actually go in the water right now. We can't go in until four to six. That sounds awful. The... Yeah, it's tough life. Yeah, until, yeah. until tomorrow. Tomorrow it goes back to normal. Tomorrow oh, it goes oh, back to normal. Oh, wow. You Your hardship you with... is extending but, uh, yeah. so far into the future. Yeah. You, you give with one hand and then take it away immediately with the other. <laughs> Okay, everybody, if everybody yeah. would like to now take their devices to the window and show us if you feel comfortable to do so. Uh, show us your view. And if anybody's is better than Rand's. Matt's got a nice ginnel. Yeah, that's nice. That's nice. That, it's very yeah. sunny there. Well, oh, Chris's is, Chris is yeah. somewhere very green. Yeah. 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 Tower block. Excellent. Oh, that looks nice. And, and Mark is still Oliver, in outer that looks space. Nice. So that's. that's Oliver great. is in yeah. what looks like some sort of European city. Yes, he does. Yeah. That's, yeah. that's not Britain. Okay, Rand, you are the arbiter here. Are any of them nicer than the one that you're currently enjoying? Um, Oliver looks pretty good. Oliver's, oh, no, Adam, Adam, Adam looks nice. That looks nice. Oh, that, that is nice. That's really nice. Oh, that yeah, is very nice. nice. Is Adam, was, yeah. Adam, I think, sounded uh, Antipodean. 
Is that correct, Adam? It is. It is. Although I'm, I'm actually in uh, Long Island in uh, New York State right now, yeah. but I uh, grew up in Australia. But yes. Oh, yeah. You, you live on Long so Island. So you're wrong, Rory. The people. All the posh oh, people. No, no, no. I live, in, I, I live in the Norfolk. It's the Anti Hamptons. It's oh, the other yeah. side. <laughs> <laughs> oh, Oliver is in Geneva. Ah, oh, lovely. Sweet. Delightful. But, but Matt is in Swindon, so he wins. <laughs> Swindon wins. <laughs> Thank you, Matt. Congratulations. Lovely wallpaper, by the way. Thank you all. Hope well, everybody. Take care. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah, this bit's still really sad. When, <laughs> when Bye, appears. everybody. You've got to get you. You've got to have your, your face ready. You've got to have your goodbye face ready. That's it. See, Chris. Chris is, where's, the, where's the tear Chris dropping down your face? Doing. And... <laughs> <laughs> I reach it. Stop milking it, Chris. Get out. <laughs>